So good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's quite a moment to be sitting here and then open my eyes and there's like, oh, all this anticipation. What's going to happen? I don't know. (laughs) So I want to begin with some song lyrics. You got me singing, even though the news is bad. You got me singing the only song I ever had. You got me singing even though the world is gone. You got me thinking I'd I'd like to carry on. You got me singing even though it all looks grim. You got me singing the hallelujah hymn. Anybody recognize that song? That's Leonard Cohen, who is an oft-quoted favorite in the Dharma world. And it's interesting, even as I was practicing today, I read these lyrics and I got a little teary. Like this sense of, of the heart that sings, even in the midst of all the brokenness of the world. And that is how I feel about being here and the practice. Isn't that what the practice is? We just had this big uplift from Tuary. We want to sing, even in the midst of all, the, all of it <laughs> that we've been in. Whatever it's been, all the changing, dynamic, human experience. So you've heard us say this a lot, and I want to start with the same question about what are we really doing here? Why are we here? And we've worked a lot with intention. You've heard a lot about that. And it's partly because, Eugene said last night, we don't own any of it. But in some ways, it's all appropriated. But I would argue that we do own intention. It's often said, everything rests on the hair's tip of intention. In Pali, it's chetana or volition. So it's quite important to know what we want, where we're going, really. So beautiful, we wrote our intentions for 2020. You've been working a lot with that, setting our compass. So that's where I want to start. This is René Domal, who was a French novelist and somewhat of a mystic. He wrote a novel called Mount Analogue, which is somewhat of a metaphor for uh, the spiritual journey, climbing a mountain. So he tells us, keep your eyes fixed on the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal. The first step depends on the last. 
So I love this because we have to take the first steps. Getting there depends on the very beginning. And yet, the first, the first steps that we're taking also depend on the last, on where we're going. So this is one of the paradoxes of Buddhism because we might not always know where we're going. And that's okay. That's okay, we can let go of knowing. But I would also like to say that the end of the path is something that inspires great um, energy and aspiration for me. Like to allow the possibility of an end, of something that I really love, that I'm so in love with, I'm devoting all this energy to, and I'm moving that way. So knowing that and having clarity, I think, is very important. And it's been lovely to sit with some of you and and to read even the intentions that you wrote on your uh, little meeting slips about why you came. You know, often it's about settling and finding peace or deepening practice. Some of you are very clear. You know this is the path to full awakening, and that's why you're here. So that's good. (laughs) We have many different intentions. Munindraji, who was a, a big, he's a beautiful lineage holder in our lineage. He was Joseph Goldstein's teacher. So he was my teacher's teacher and really responsible for the proliferation of, of Dharma in the Western world in some ways. It's a beautiful being. I've, I've been reading his bio, which I highly recommend. It's called Living This Life Fully. So he says, I meditate so that I will see the little purple flowers growing by the side of the road. So it can be that simple. So that we can hear the chirping of the hummingbirds and know, oh, these are hummingbirds and they hang out right over there in those bushes. (laughs) And we start to see the rainbow gloss of the turkeys, their feathers. Or we start to know the beauty of the inanimate things that Tuari has been telling us about. So we can have a diversity of intentions, and that's one of the beauties here, is that Dharma sort of grows each individual uniquely and blossoms in many different ways. But there's also a kind of universal leaning, a longing that we have. We can call it love, we can call it peace, or awakening, or enlightenment. But there is this sort of fundamental wanting, leaning towards happiness, towards a sense of contentment and fulfillment deep satisfaction that we long for. So often in the Buddhist lexicon, in our language, we call this freedom. And freedom is an interesting word, so I want to spend some time with it. Liberation, emancipation. What is freedom, really? What is it for you? So we did, I did a little survey at dinner, and it was lovely, actually. I got all kinds of good answers from the team. So for Nolita, these are little summaries, longer conversation, but Nolita said freedom is non-clinging. Tuari said freedom is in the heart qualities. Dara said freedom comes actually when we know that we're not free 
and we have the choice to move in a different way. Pam said freedom is letting go, and it's always a surprise that it comes when we're not expecting it. And Eugene said freedom is just the freedom to be. It can be any way, it doesn't matter. Just the freedom to be me. So we have this sense of what it feels like. And we've all had this, right? These little momentary, like, So even if it's hard to talk about, we know that we like it. And the Buddha, I mean, he was very clear that he taught suffering in the end of suffering, that the whole path is about liberation. And he called it many things, too. He called it the sure heart's release. Or sometimes this is framed in terms of understanding. He said, this is in the Itivutaka Sutta, this committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. That's a kind of freedom. Or very traditionally and simply, we might say freedom is uh, awakening or the end of the path is freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. Just uprooting those defilements. So there's no one way to define it, and it really is up to us to decide what is that heart's release. What does it feel like in this mind and body? And sometimes it comes in a Buddhist frame, and sometimes it feels much bigger than that. And that's good. That's our own personal sense of freedom. But the the thing that I find uh, astonishing again and again is that the Buddha was not uh, confused about this. He was very clear in the Satipatthana that we've been teaching. In the very beginning we hear it, he says, this is the way, O yogis, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the straight path, the attainment of Nibbana. That is the four arousings of mindfulness. This is what we've been doing here. So that's kind of amazing that he said, here's the teaching, here's the instruction, just like you've been getting in the morning, mindfulness of the body and the breath and Vedana and the heart and the mind. And this is the path for complete and utter liberation. So I don't know how it is for you. For me, that sort of passes me by a lot. Like, do I really let it sink in that complete freedom is possible for me? Like, in right now, maybe. Or at least in this lifetime. Do we believe that it's possible to be completely free of suffering? And we don't have to. But just even allowing that potential to kind of sink in a little bit, that this is really what the Buddha taught and we're kind of doing it, that's, that's a little bit surprising, isn't it? Sometimes. It's a good reminder, I find. Like, wow. It's kind of big. <laughs> right? We're not ambitious at all. We're just going for complete freedom. Totally. <laughs> so no wonder it's hard sometimes. Right? We might maybe feel like it should be easier. We should be getting there faster. 
But when you take in the gravity of what we're doing, no wonder it's hard and it's slow. It's big. It's a big project. And the paradox, right, sort of the biggest project. Talk about the to-do list. (laughs) But the paradox is that, yes, it's long and slow and big. And the only thing, the only freedom that happens ever is right here. Is just moment by moment. So if it's starting to feel sort of heavy and like, oh my God, okay, big project. We can take off that backpack and just be like, it's just here. That's it. The freedom actually is in taking off the backpack. So paradox, a lot of it. Another paradox. So even if we're very clear about what we want, so here we are practicing for freedom. We know that's what we want. We're often kind of going in the wrong direction. So Simone Weil, who is a French philosopher and mystic and political activist, she said, what people are looking for is not wrong, but they're looking for it in the wrong place. And we can see this again and again. It's quite humbling when you see this in our own minds. And we see it externally too. So I was just practicing uh, a lot in Massachusetts. I've done a lot of my long retreats there at the Insight Meditation Society and there's all kinds of charming things about that landscape, although it's quite different from this one. So uh, there's a, a loop, like a walking loop on the roads nearby that I often do in the afternoons. And at certain seasons or time of the year, there are a lot of caterpillars. And they're so cute. You've probably seen the, like the black and the and the sort of orange, really spiky, fuzzy caterpillars. I think I call them woolly bears in my mind. I'm not sure if that's the name of them. The, the woolly bear caterpillars come out, and they're you can see them by the side of the road and the way they inch along. They're very determined in the way that they move. And often, as you're walking along the road, there's many who are just heading right out into the street. <laughs> They are determined. They're just like, know where they're going, and they're going to go. Inching, inching. And you can see it, right? What's happening? They're like moving out. Very long road. Very big for them. (laughs) And there's cars, right? It's danger. They're going through it. So often, you know, you get into yogi mind, and the heart is all open. And I feel quite distressed when I walk and see, like, oh, they're going. They have a long way to go the other side, right? So sometimes I'll like get a stick and try to like redirect, redirect, <laughs> abort, abort, turn around, you know, or like pick them up, like gently put them down. Inevitably, if you watch, they're like, you know, kind of ruffled with your intervention. And then they like turn right back around and they're like going across the road. <laughs> the kind of determination. And we see that we have that in our own minds too, right? These habits are deep. So we can hear a lot about, oh yeah, okay, so it's not about worldly pleasure and it's not about getting what we want. And right, inevitably the mind is like, and I would really like to feel good and not bad. (laughs) We have all our different ways of doing it. Each, Each expression is so sweet. Like the caterpillars have their own way. And then also, like in the springtime, there's these little tiny salamanders. I think they're called EFT, 
very bright orange with these spots. And they're, they're a totally different personality. They move very slowly. So they're like inching, like walking meditation, very slow. <laughs> but the same kind of determination. They're also very small and the road is very big. So you can see, right, we have our different ways of like going towards what we think we want and it's wrong, right? It's not going to lead to goodness or happiness. Just staying before coming here, I was just staying with a dear friend, actually, who I met on retreat here, um, and she has a four-year-old daughter named Hannah. And Hannah is uh, very smart and strong-willed. And uh, if you're familiar with the, the Buddhist personality types, Hannah is a greed type through and through. So we woke up in the morning, and Rebecca, who's this lovely mother, she's such a good cook and very nourishing, she's trying to get breakfast together, and she's asking her daughter, what do you want for breakfast? And Hannah's very clear. Mama, I want to juice fruit. I want to make fruit juice. And so Rebecca looks around, and their pantry is kind of empty because they're getting ready to go on a trip, and she says, I'm sorry, we don't have juicing fruits. We don't have them. We have orange juice in the fridge. We have coconut water. We, or we can make a smoothie. And Hannah's like, no, Mama, I want to make fruit juice. I don't want orange juice. I don't want coconut juice. I want to make fruit juice. And her mother very patiently again and again, but we don't have juicing fruits in the house. Hannah, but Mama, I want to make fruit juice. <laughs> we can see that determination, right, again and again. It's like the logic doesn't sink in. And this was four or five times patiently that her mother told her. Finally, you saw the sort of shift in like, okay. She's like, okay, I want to make ice cream. <laughs> so, and we do this too, you know. Finally, if we're hitting our head against the wall and we're like, okay, that's not going to deliver happiness, then we go to the next thing that ultimately also isn't going to gratify so same thing in practice, right? At least we're here, okay, we're practicing. But we find that sort of like drifting off the side of the path very often too. That greed gets involved and we want a lot of samadhi or we're trying to like control our experience and our practice in a particular way. And we forget, we forget that the way to freedom is actually letting go of all of that. I've been loving meeting with some of you in, uh, in the individual meetings. And today we were talking about, some of us, about um, looking at the absence of things. Like that often freedom isn't about what we're getting or gaining, but what's not here. And that, that's kind of an interesting orientation to start to look at, oh, maybe I didn't get what I wanted, but what, uh, what is here? What really is here in that absence? My partner and I often teach in different parts of the world. We do these little mindfulness workshops. And a good example of this, like not really getting what we wanted. Um, we were invited. We have good friends who live in Iceland. And so we were invited to go. We, we taught a workshop there one year. They invited us back. And we loved Iceland. It was a wonderful experience. And so we're like, we're going to go back, teach again. 
and this was like a year in advance. So we fixed the dates and we found the spot and reserved the room and a lot of work put together publicity and flyers and we're, you know, doing this thing. And um, about three months before we were about to go, we get an email saying that John Cabot Zinn, who is the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction and in some ways the a, a big uh, progenitor of secular mindfulness in this uh, in the West. So huge. He has decided, he's never been to Iceland before, but he's decided he's going to teach in Reykjavik the same weekend, exactly the same dates, Friday through Sunday, of our like little mindfulness workshop. And they're like, oh, that's why we don't have any registrations at all. So, you know, we thought about it really, this is bad luck, but maybe we'd sort of overlap, or we knew a lot of people who were part of the John Kabat-Zinn workshop, so maybe we can work together, and we already had our flight, so we're like, okay, we're just going to go, and more publicity, more publicity, <laughs> we're trying to, so one person signs up, second person signs up, lovely, you know, and then the fourth person is like, yeah, we'll help spread the news, and so we get there, we have four people registered, it's like a few days beforehand and we're like looking at the cost and all of this and and finally we talked to the woman who was organizing the John Kabat-Zinn event and she's like yeah you're not gonna <laughs> nobody's gonna come basically is what she said to us oh and there was this moment of just complete and utter failure like wow we have come so far and we tried hard but this is probably not gonna work it's probably not gonna work and we all have that sense, right? And like, oh, the embarrassment, and we have to tell people that this is, you know, we have to cancel. So we had a, like a day maybe of that resisting the reality of like, we, we probably need to cancel this. And then that like, oh, the stomach sink of it. And then I will say, so we sent out the email and we canceled at the hotel. And it was like, once we did that, sort of the moment that we did that, it was like, but we're in Iceland. <laughs> And now we have all this free time. And so we just like hung out and camped and went to hot springs and it was amazing. It's kind of like way better than, you know, anything else that we could have imagined. So that's often how the Dharma is. Like we come here expecting one thing or thinking it's going to be like our last retreat or knowing, thinking we know actually what practice is about and and it's, like Pam said, it's completely surprising and things happen unexpectedly and like the messiest, most like deepest failure that we've been trying to avoid the whole time actually turns into this like whole doorway to new insight. We start to see, oh, the way I've been going actually, crossing, trying to cross that road is like not even the way. I <laughs> just like turn right around. Maybe I'm already there in safety on one side of the road. <laughs> so this absence, I think this has been very interesting and fruitful for me in my practice right now. Because we're so oriented to what is happening, we don't often notice what's not. And the Buddha was pointing to this all the time. You know, he calls Nibbana, the, it's it's compared to or sort of directly translated as, um, as the going out of a candle. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Or rice that's cooling. 
like a blowing out or a quenching. And we often hear about Nibbana as the deathless or non-clinging, unbinding, the unconditioned, the unmanifest, the unproliferated. So what happens in the mind when we hear those, the negative, when we phrase things in the negative? Sometimes it's a little like, hmm, what is that? Right intention on the eightfold path, it's the second fold, is uh, described as non-grasping, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. So I think all of that is pointing towards really what's not here. How does it feel to not have greed? When aversion isn't in the mind, how does it feel? So this is a poem by Marie Howe. Oh, the coming out of nowhere moment when nothing happens. No what I have to do today list. Maybe half a moment, the rush of traffic stops. The whir of I should be, I should be, I should be, slows to silence. The white cotton curtains hanging still. And we've had many of these moments on retreat this week when it's sort of like things just settle and we're just things with we're just with things as they are how does that feel if you're a greed type like me sometimes it feels boring (laughs) or like "Mm, something else should be happening here like right I've heard some of you say that and like isn't there something else I need to do Eugene reminded me of Janis Joplin, so wise. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. That implies a lot of loss. Right? How is it on this path actually to embrace loss again and again? Like we kind of have to, right? Pam was talking about impermanence. Sort of how it is. So Dara actually touched a little bit on this. There's these beautiful metaphors for when hindrances aren't present. Some of these might be familiar. But how does it really feel not to have the hindrance, but when we don't have it? So when we're free of sensual desire, it's like uh, being free of debt. And when we don't have aversion, it's like overcoming an illness. Not having sloth and torpor is freedom. Being released from prison. That's a powerful metaphor. When we're free of restlessness and worry, it's like freedom from servitude. And when we're not hindered by doubt, it's like we've just crossed a very hot and dry and dangerous desert. And we've gotten to the other side. So I was always pointing to, like, let's look at what... What actually is happening here that's wholesome? This negativity bias always has us directing towards what's going wrong, but what is really in the quiet spaces in between? 
The Way It Is by Lynn Ungar. One morning you might wake up to realize that the knot in your stomach has loosened itself and slipped away. And that the pit of unfulfilled longing in your heart had gradually and without your really noticing been filled in. Patched like a pothole, not quite the same as it was, but good enough. And in that moment, it might occur to you that your life, though not the way you planned it, and maybe not even entirely the way you wanted it, is nonetheless persistently, abundantly, miraculously, exactly the way it is. I think that's a lot of what practice feels like often, just like this. So I want to talk a little bit about what hinders us from feeling that freedom or that absence of things. And again, the Buddha was very clear, he's not confused. He says, yogis, I do not envision even one other fetter, fettered by which beings go wandering and transmigrating for a long, long time, like the fetter of craving. So we hear a lot about craving and greed, and we think, oh, we're not supposed to have that. But what is it really? There's lots of words, wanting, desire, craving, clinging, greed. But again, we're in this sort of dangerous territory of translation because tanha, the Pali word that's translated as craving, literally means thirst or the fever of unsatisfied longing. And I like those because they're so visceral. Like, that feeling of when we just really want something. When we're mindful of it, we notice, oh, it's really not pleasant. And that's the second noble truth. The Buddha is clear. That's the problem. It keeps us turning. But I think we have to be careful about this translation because it's not about getting rid of desire. It's really not about getting rid of passion. That there's a lot of desire on this path. We need a lot of chanda, which is also translated as desire or wholesome desire. I like to think of it as enthusiasm. We need so much of that, don't we? To keep us going when things get hard. So it again, it's not about uh, yeah, getting rid of the world or somehow getting rid of our wanting things or just like renouncing things so we won't have greed. There is a kind of wholesome desire, but we're getting familiar with when does it feel really tight and contracted and that kind of burning thirst? And when does our wanting actually feel like it's onward leading? There's an enthusiastic leaning toward, leaning into. I find it's really useful actually to know what my craving is. Like, what do I really crave? Our guilty pleasures. Everyone has sort of different ones, right? For me, it might actually be exercise. I really like endorphins. <sighs> Eating healthy has been a big, like, important compass for me. I like nice clothes. That's true. I like beautiful sunrises and adventures. 
and being in nature. And these are all really wholesome things, but I do crave them, right? There is a kind of thirst often. If I don't get my exercise in the morning, I'm like not happy. So the the thing I want to distinguish is that it's not about letting go of those things. It's about coming into a different relationship with them. We're letting go of the craving mind. Eugene was saying that the one translation for right in the Dharma is coming into alignment with the truth. And that's really what's happening. It's, no, we're not leaving the world. We're actually more in the world because we're in it and we see the impermanence and we see how it doesn't satisfy and we're just eating the papaya in the morning and enjoying it. And then when it's gone, it's gone. It's okay. So I felt this pretty clearly um, during my year of living in Hawaii. I uh, was very fortunate. My partner and I were there for 12 months. And I was a lot of happiness and joy that happened when I was living there. But as you can imagine, there was also a lot of pleasant Vedana. It's like pleasant, pleasant, pleasant noting. And I kind of had to sort of hesitate to even, didn't tell many friends that this was my life, but I had this amazing life when I lived there. I could go running on the beach during sunrise and then jump in the ocean and then eat a papaya and then go to yoga. It was like everything. And not to say, I mean, Hawaii is a complicated place. There is a lot of oppression there. It is stolen land. And I was learning about that. I was learning Hawaiian language and hula. And actually being in a non-white majority culture was really beautiful for me. I appreciated that so much. So not to gloss over all of the complexities of that place. But there was something that was so real about that, like being in touch and aware of the history and learning about it, curiosity and meeting the people. And, And also the sort of, this is what I was so inspired by, like the aloha spirit this aloha that is actually really metta is so alive in Hawaii, like regardless of the oppression that is there, regardless of all of the pain and the, the real like horrifying details of the history. Aloha, like somehow the Hawaiians have preserved the beauty of love. And it is visceral. I would say it's probably why a lot of people like to go there. So, you know, feeling sort of bathed, even as a guest in their culture, like, wow, it's so available and so offered all the time. So there's a joy, but I would say I also was often tipping into that craving mind (laughs) and a little bit manic about it. Like, Craig was like, I didn't even see you for a year because you're always hiking or paddling or going off to your hula class or whatever you got to do, the big adventure next. And it is a little neurotic, right? I don't know if some of you can relate. Other greed types, maybe. And there was a burn. I could feel it. I could feel the burn when I was in that. But living next to the ocean, I'm not going to not go swimming. (laughs) Right? My partner is aversive. He could sit and meditate in our apartment, in our hot, humid apartment. And I'd be like, he's crazy. I'm not going to do that. I'm going. So I sort of knew my limit. Like, some people might have that renunciation. I didn't. But even after I got over my grief of leaving, it was interesting to watch. Okay, so I had a grief process of leaving. And then the absence, like what wasn't there? When I don't have those conditions, there was a lot less greed in the mind. 
And it was actually an interesting transition because we moved and we took these vows and we went into retreat and shaved our heads and now we're wearing these funny clothes and it was like, whoa, more, a lot of renunciation. It was opposite. And I had all this anticipation about it, you know, like worry about the loss. And and the funny thing was now, I mean, it's happened and I actually didn't have any of that. Like all of that worry and the anticipation was completely unnecessary because it just happened. And then there was a lot of absence. And that's so much more peaceful. <laughs> There's so much more ease. And of course I miss, you know, I, in the morning I think about the sunrise and I sort of miss it. I feel this sort of poignancy. But it's, it's I think the freedom the Buddha was talking about is not a kind of like sadness, grief. Like it's not weighing down. It's sort of a light, poignant, like, oh, impermanence happened. And the sunrise is happening in Hawaii, even though I'm not there to see it. And there's a munita that arises, thinking about the people who are. So this is a kind of a disenchantment the Buddha points to. And these words like dispassion and disenchantment, we have a negative connotation to them. But I love this disenchantment. It's like we're under a spell, like sleeping beauty. There's some, some spell of delusion has been cast over us. And the process of getting calm and quiet and peaceful, we start to see things as they are. And the appropriate response, actually, is to wake up from the spell and to see, oh, this is how things are. The only choice I have is to let go. So nibida is the Pali word for disenchantment. And I think it's an interesting, again, a translation. Um, we can translate it in different ways. It could be a fading out. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi says it's the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena, which supervenes when the illusion of their permanence, pleasure, and selfhood has been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and vision of things as they are. So we start to see things and there's a kind of a release, a disenchantment that happens. I love this image Buddhaghosa says that uh, it's like someone who's fishing and there's a caught something in his net and this fisherman reaches into the net and instead of pulling out a fish, when he pulls out, it's a huge snake. And how do we feel? Like, oh, there's revulsion even there. Like, whoa. And what's the appropriate response? We have to let it go. And there, that's, we don't even think about it. We're not like, oh, okay, there's a snake. What should I do? What do I, oh, I'm clinging to it. There's craving. Okay. There's not that analysis, right? It's just a like natural release of the mind. That's how awakening happens. It's not us that does it. And it's an unexpected. Right? A sort of lawful unfolding. When it's ready, the heart will let go. When it starts to really see, happens on its own. Here's a poem. Still life at dusk. It happens surprisingly fast, the way your shadow leaves you. 
All day you've been linked by the light. But now that darkness gathers the world in a great black tide, your shadow leaves you to join the sea of all other shadows. If you stand here long enough, you too will forget your lines and merge with the tall grass and old trees, with the crows and the flooding river, all these pieces of the world that daylight has broken into objects of singular loneliness. It happens surprisingly fast, the loss of your shadow, and standing in the field, you become the field, and standing in the night, you are gathered by night. Invisible birds sing to the memory of light, but then even those separate, separate songs fade into the one big silence that always seems to be waiting. The one big silence that always seems to be waiting. That's a kind of freedom. So several of you have asked me to talk about celibacy. (laughs) And uh, there's still time. I thought maybe I'd get to the end, but we still have time. So I'll tell you. sort of touched a little bit on it. It's been an interesting journey actually taking these robes and kind of a new identity for a year. Uh, And we all have our very different relationship to sexuality. So just to say this is my own experience and you can take it in for however it's helpful, but a lot of it, the encouragement is to really come into alignment with what is yours. So I will say for me, as uh, someone embodied in a female body, um, I'm white, right? I'm a certain age in this particular culture at this time. There's a lot of layers between me and coming into alignment with my own sexuality. I would say there's objectification of the body. This is pretty universal. I think we're all in this. There's a kind of patriarchy that I have to swim through. There's consumerism, right? And these projections and ideals and all these, like, ideas that I think I need to live up to. It's like a lot in between just me and this body and how it experiences itself. So up until taking these vows, those I knew those existed, but I didn't quite, like I was still sort of like always kind of pushing out of the way, right? Slogging through. And then we both, my partner and I took this vow and it was like, oh, I can just step right out of that spin kind of amazing. I still see it. You know, like walking through airports, for example, I'm just, I'm looking at bodies and I'm noticing like all the, you know, in the mind there's projection and I see people sort of in that mentality of like, gotta be a particular way or all the advertising, all the stuff, right, that we hear and we see and we swim in. And I have to say for me, it's like, this is sort of like this, somehow this protection, like, oh, I'm actually, I can step out of it for a minute. And a lot of space to just be like, oh, okay, the body's breathing, there's warmth, like, it's very sensual. I still feel a lot of senses, sensory experiences happening. <laughs> but it's in the absence of it. 
Same, same, same. And interesting because my partner has a very different relationship to sex and sexuality. But what he says for him is that, I mean, he's been through some hardness, difficult, but he says he doesn't feel any less close or intimate. And in some ways, he actually feels closer because there isn't, between us, there isn't that need that he has or an expectation or wanting to get something from me. Right? So it's a little bit more direct. And again, the absence of that expectation. I feel it too. Like, oh, I don't have to like wear these particular clothes or look any particular way. But, and then there's the other side of it. Like, and I really want him to think that I'm attractive, right? I'm a little bit afraid. Is he going to want to be celibate all the time? I don't know. (laughs) And actually, I mean, that fear is deep. Like, I went through in retreat some real terror about he's just going to become a monk and just want to be the dharma in the dharma all the time, you know? Like, there's that. There's that truth, too. There's And there's sort of patriarchy to taking vows, too, I will say, quite a lot. So not that like we all need to shave our heads now and wear funny clothes to like free ourselves of patriarchy and objectifying consumerism. But the encouragement, I guess, is that we can be creative about how we feel our own truths and feel our own bodies and our own aliveness. That we don't have to just sign up for what the culture says we need to be. And we don't have to follow those orders. Those orders don't even lead to any kind of happiness anyway. So what is the possibility for you? And what does that look like for you being alive in a body at this moment? Many, many, many different varieties of that. And can we celebrate it? And I'll just say it's similar actually with intoxicants. Alcohol and drugs have never really been my thing, but sugar, yes. And it's been really powerful to just say no, right? That power of no, that's the fifth way of working with thoughts. Sometimes it can feel a little striving, but often it's like a wisdom, a sword, the sort of wisdom that's like, nope, I'm just not going to go there. And renunciation has that wisdom. So again, our culture isn't very renunciation positive. (laughs) Don't let desire pass you by, right? Like... Satisfy that craving. But really what I'm learning is there is like so much power to just saying no for a bit of time. And then see what's, what's there in, in place of that. The Dharma is very intoxicating. So I haven't renounced that kind of intoxication. And none of us have. And we've been in it. It's amazing, right? I mean, we've all felt that sweetness. And we want it. There's a reason why samadhi is pleasant. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Keeps us going. But again, so much of it is about finding and exploring for ourselves. Come and see for yourself. Allow that curiosity and that openness to like, what is this truth right here in this moment? What is it for me? What is letting go for me right now? So the last thought I want to share is that 
So here's tip of intention. We own our intentions. Very important to know where we're going. And the trick and the magic and the sort of weird paradox of it all is that we don't do it. And we can't do it. We can't control it. So it's sort of like we set our goal, we know where we're going, and then we're like, like complete release and letting go. And the nature of the Dharma is that it unfolds lawfully. So all we have to do is keep going, and inevitably freedom will happen. That's also amazing. (laughs) Not only is it available for each of us, our birthright, but it's lawful and natural and inevitable if we keep going. How is that to let that sink in? A lot of good similes for this in the suttas, and the one I like the best is about the hen. So you guys have maybe heard this one, the Buddha's talking about. There's this hen who settles in, and she incubates rightly, and she sits rightly, and she warms her eggs rightly. (laughs) I always kind of think about that, like the yogis who are kind of settling in, like getting your right posture, (laughs) wiggling your bum, getting kind of situated. And then the Buddha says for this hen, it's not like she is like thinking about like, may this egg hatch, may the beak hatch out, and then the, may the, the, the chicks hatch out of the egg. It's not that. It's more like, no, she doesn't have to tinker and twerk and like pray hard. It's like, no, naturally she just sits. That's all you have to do. And that chick is going to break out of the egg. So funny when we watch our minds being like, oh, should I walk? Should I walk slowly? Should I walk fast? Should I go for a long walk? Should I go for, maybe tea? No, tea. It's like going to hinder my, (laughs) how do I work with thoughts again? Like we can get very tinkery about it. But the big picture is actually just keep going in your messy, imperfect way. And that egg is going to hatch inevitably. Just keep sitting. Milarepa, who is this really wonderful yogi saint in the Tibetan tradition, he sings a lot of songs of realization. His last teaching to his student, Gampopa, was a big one. No words in this teaching. He lifted his shirt and pulled down his pants and showed his bum (laughs) to Gampopa. And apparently his butt, Milarepa's butt, was a callous. That's all it was, just calloused butt. And that was the last teaching. (laughs) So he did a lot of sitting. (laughs) I think his feet probably were callous too. Hopefully he was doing some walking meditation. But that's really it. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming. (laughs) That's a dory the spotted blue tang from Finding Nemo, right, to quote her. And I sing that often to myself on retreat. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming. (laughs) That's it. Very deep instructions from Finding Nemo. So I'll end with uh, Munindraji again. This is, he says, he says, I want a person who is really practicing, 
who's serious. They must experience Dhamma. They come on track. Life becomes very easy, simple, and wonderful. An asset for the world. That's what I want. If they follow the teachings, within a short time it can happen. There's no time limit. Every step takes you nearer the goal. You understand how to live in the moment. And everybody has this responsibility. Even one person who becomes illuminated with the light becomes an asset to herself, to society, to the whole world. So that is the essence of the whole teaching. It is universal love, goodness, beauty, abundance of health, happiness, and prosperity. When the mind is pure, there is love. You see what is good. You see for yourself. So let's just sit for a moment together. <laughs> 